Welcome to the Heal Podcast for all things related to Lyme disease and other chronic illnesses. I'm Mimi McLean, Mama Five, founder of Lyme 360 and a Lyme warrior. Tune in each week to hear from doctors, health practitioners, and experts to hear about their treatments, struggles, and triumphs to help you on your healing journey. I'm here to heal with you. Welcome back to the Heal Podcast. This is Mimi McLean, and today's podcast is sponsored by Beauty Counter. If you're looking for clean personal care products, this is the brand for you. They have safe cosmetics, shampoo, and face lotions. Go to beautycounter.com forward slash Lime 360. Today's podcast is with Dr. Daniel Kinderlauer. He is a nationally recognized physician with expertise in the fields of nutrition, allergy, environmental medicine, Lyme disease, and healing of mind, body, and spirit as a unified whole. He recently came out with a book called Recovery from Lyme, the Integrative Guide to the Diagnosis and Treatment of Tick-Borne Illnesses. Today, we talk about why conventional medicine doctors do not recognize Lyme, pandas, mental health, sleeping issues, decelifrom, and other treatments that he uses in his practice. He is also coming out with a book on March 16th called Recovery from Lyme, the Integrative Guide to the Diagnosis and Treatment of Tick-Borne Illnesses. To get my Detox for Lyme checklist, go to Lyme360.com forward slash detox checklist. Dr. Kinderler, thank you so much for coming on today. I'm super excited to talk to you and talk about your new book that's coming out. It's great to hear your side because you also had Lyme. I've enjoyed reading your book because I felt like I was, I almost started crying during it because I felt like I was talking to myself reading mm. your book because all of your, what you experienced with your sleeping and talking to even friends that are doctors and not being heard or understood or people didn't understand what you're going through. So it kind of really related to me. So, but thank you for coming on. And I would love to start out by talking about your Lyme journey. My Lyme journey. Okay. Well, I've lived in Massachusetts, not far from your home state of Connecticut. And this was in 1996, August of 1996. I won't forget that timeline. And suddenly I came down with this high fever, 104 degrees, shaking chills and drenching sweats and diffuse aching. And then it was gone after two or three days. And I had not seen a tick. I had not seen a rash. And I didn't know what it was, but since it was gone after a few days, I was willing to ignore it, you know, some sort of virus. But a week later, it recurred. And this was a little scary, but after another couple of days, I was fine. And then it recurred another week later, at which point I couldn't ignore it anymore. I saw my family doctor. I didn't have a family doctor. I saw a friend of mine who's a doctor. He examined me, said, well, you know, you have a large spleen. He ran some blood tests and it was positive for Lyme, which was great news. Okay, I'll go on an antibiotic and we'll be done. Not even close. So what happened then was very interesting. I go on antibiotics, but around that same time, I'm not getting better and my symptoms are morphing. At that point, I, my sleep goes south big time. Like, you know, at this point, I'm taking 100 milligrams of Benadryl and other agents to try to get some sleep and just feeling awful and anxiety. I was generally a calm, cool, collected kind of guy. Things didn't rattle me. 
I was nine out of 10 all the time, impending doom. It was awful. And um, so these symptoms were ongoing. They weren't changing with antibiotics. And after a month or so, I called up someone who was, was and is considered a leading Lyme expert in the country. And back then, doctors could call doctors and you'd get a call back. But unfortunately, it's, <laughs> it doesn't work so well anymore. But this, this uh, international expert in Lyme disease, he listened to my story and and I had told them about lab data. I had follow-up lab testing, which was also a slam dunk for Lyme disease. And what he said was, well, you don't have Lyme disease. And I said, why not? And he said, well, if you had Lyme disease, you'd be better by now because you've been on treatment. Right. And I said, well, what about the lab tests? They, they were a slam dunk. And he said, false positive. Right. And I said, well, what do you think I have? He said, something else. And that was it. That was the whole conversation. So and frustrating. It, yeah, very frustrating. I hung up. My head was spinning. It turns out he, he was absolutely wrong. I had Lyme disease. There was no question I had Lyme disease. He was right. I had something else, as you might suspect already. I had babesiosis, which is what can give fever, sweats, and chills, mm -hmm. and often recurs on a one- or two-week basis like it did at the onset of this infection. At that point, I called up a friend of mine who worked in upstate New York, and I knew, I knew he was seeing people with Lyme disease because I, I hadn't been at that point. And this is, what, 25 years ago. And and I described what happened, and his response was, welcome to the Lyme Wars. I know that was a great way of saying that, because it is a war between the world of doctors, right? The conventional medicine, and now that you see more, you know, alternative people coming out. But even if you don't, I, I actually call it like three different pockets, right? You have like the, the doctors that don't believe in Lyme at all, that it doesn't exist. Then you have mm -hmm. the doctors that only want to treat it with heavy, heavy, heavy dose of antibiotics. And then you have the camp of doctors that are like, hey, we'll use a mixture. It's, it's other things. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's like an onion that needs to be peeled back. So it's like three different camps that not, is that an accurate way of like how you would describe it or how else would you? It's, it's an interesting way to look at it. As I think about it for the first time in terms of camps, I mean, it had been two camps. One that the Infectious Disease Society of America upholds, which is, Lyme disease is easy to diagnose, easy to treat, short-term antibiotics, no big deal, versus the other camp, which says, actually, it can be challenging to diagnose, often complicated by multiple co-infections, and can be very challenging to treat and may require long-term antibiotics. Now, within each group, you know, there, I guess there are subgroups within the, those who believe there is such a thing as chronic Lyme, and I'll come back to that nomenclature, but of those who believe that there is such a thing as persistent Lyme infection, even after a short course of antibiotics, there are those allopathic docs who basically all they have in their toolbox is antibiotics versus the integrative docs like myself who you know, have a much bigger toolbox. You know, we can talk about mm -hmm. those things we're addressing. I will say that there are more and more mainstream docs who are recognizing that there is such a thing 
as persistent infection. I'm sure you're aware of the designation post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome, PTLDS, which is anathema to me and many others because it implies that the Lyme is no longer there. But I'm actually going to go out on a limb. I think it's more likely than not that people who get acute Lyme disease who are treated with a relatively short course of antibiotics, two to four weeks, and they only have Lyme disease, that is, they don't have co-infections, and they're otherwise healthy, most of them are cured, or if not cured, minor remaining symptoms because they don't end up in my office. I see people who have chronic persistent infection. They all have Lyme. I never see someone who doesn't have one, two, three, sometimes four co-infections. They all have co-infections. And that's why I use the designation in my book of Lyme disease complex, which includes not just Lyme, but includes the tick-borne co-infections. But it also includes all the downstream problems associated with this, like endocrine disruption, neurological issues, and on and on and on that we can get into if you want. So it is progress that the mainstream doctors are now admitting that they say 10 to 20% of people who were treated for acute Lyme disease go on to have chronic symptomatology. And they're acknowledging that these people are actually sick. But are they though? Because I feel like the insurance companies still aren't covering it. If you talk to like most of the Lyme communities that I'm in, these people are going to the emergency room for various, like I've been to the emergency room three times and all three times, and this is all in the past five years, all three times, East Coast, West Coast, both even one of the times on the East Coast, which I was in Fairfield County, which is number one county in the country probably for Lyme. The wow. doctor told me that Lyme, chronic Lyme does not exist and yeah. that I should not have gotten a port because I did myself more damage because it doesn't exist. And I was making the whole thing up. And this is what she's telling me. And I'm like, I'm yeah. sitting in Fairfield County, a hospital, and they don't even believe in Lyme at this point. So it's amazing 25 years later, right? That most doctors still don't believe in chronic Lyme. Yes, I think that's true. But in academic settings, there's more and more acknowledgement that there mm-hmm. is, and it's taking quite a while to filter down you know, you're reminding me, I don't know if you might, you've been around for a while, Mimi. Do you know who Dr. Sam Dante is? No, I don't. Well, he used to work at University Hospital in Boston. So he was uh, an academic doc at Boston University School of Medicine. And he believed and treated in Lyme disease. He's an academic, published many papers. I was in his office in the summer of 2001. And a New England journal came out, and it had three articles on Lyme disease. One was the famous Klempner study, you know, that disputed that there is such a thing as chronic Lyme. One was the famous Nadelman study, which was the morning after pill. You give Doxy 200 milligrams, and you won't get Lyme disease. And the third one was a review article by Alan Steer. I had read all these articles and I turned to Sam. I said, Sam, how how does this garbage get published? And his answer was so interesting. He said, Dan, never before in my medical experience have I seen so few people have so much influence and been so wrong. Mm -hmm. We're talking about a few people 
in the IDSA who say this is the way it is. And people believe them because they're the so-called experts. Right. And what's also frustrating about it, because we were, I was this week, I did the Lime fly-in where we called into the congressmen and senators. Mm. And one thing that we talked about was, it's interesting in the past year with what's going on, how the long haulers are getting more recognition. Why does long haulers exist, but yet we can't be long haulers for Lime? Like, why is it okay for that, but not for this? And that's what we were talking about with these senators and congressmen. Like, you guys are already funding that and, and acknowledging that, but you can't acknowledge us. Like, why? Like, wh- where's the disconnect? And interestingly, we have the same symptoms. So if you're believing yes. them, why can't you believe us, right? And why can't you fund or get the insurance companies to fund, you know, whatever we need to do? So it's going to be interesting because I think as that those long haulers get sicker and sicker and don't get better and they have to figure out a cure for them or treat them, it's going to have to address what we're going through. I don't know if you happen to see the op-ed in the New York Times by Ross Duthat. It was about two weeks ago, perhaps. No, no. So he's a New York Times columnist, and he has suffered from chronic Lyme. And, well, he made the comparison that you're making, that these people with long hauler syndrome are similar to those of us who've had chronic persistent Lyme. And he said, the good thing about the long haulers is that they're getting credibility. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing that you're saying, the exact same thing. You should check it out. I feel like I'm like the first child of a divorced family and the stepchild's getting, you know, the love. <laughs> and I'm, <laughs> I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> Why are we not getting the love? <laughs> but, but you're absolutely right about, even though I really, I really see it shifting Centers like Johns Hopkins are, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're really publishing a lot on post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. Now, I eschew that that label. I won't use it. I publish too, and I, I won't use PTLDS because of the implications. And in fact, you know, you've seen, you've seen my book, and chapter three is Anatomy of the Lyme Wars, which I'm very proud of that chapter because it goes point by point of how they got it wrong. They just got it wrong. Mm-hmm. All the evidence is on our side, right? But I'm in Colorado and it, I'm suspecting it's worse than Fairfield, Connecticut. I can't believe the stories that people tell me. They, they go to the doctor's office and they get yelled at because mm-hmm. they want to be tested for Lyme disease as if these doctors even knew how to test them for Lyme disease. But it's almost like you got a question, like, what are they covering up? Why are they not? It's not like... It's not like the pharmaceuticals have a drug that's solving the problem and they're trying to like protect that pharmaceutical drug. There's not even an option. It's like, it's like why, why wouldn't you question it? Like, I don't understand. It's just a very complex. Yeah, I mean, I understand why they deny it because they're believing they're infectious disease expert and they're not really looking into the data. Mm-hmm. What I don't understand is why they get so defensive and so angry about it. Mm-hmm. Why are they threatened? I don't know. I mean, I have to imagine it has to do with their being self-conscious about their own ignorance. Not really. Mm -hmm. It's not comfortable for doctors to see patients and have no idea what's wrong with them. So I want to just pivot to something else that you brought up and I read in the book, sleeping, which I have a huge part of the sleeping and Mm. the mental health component of it. Right. Because I love the fact that you being a doctor are talking, you're talking about it because you had a personal experience with it where I don't think as 
suicides have gone through the roof and mental health has gone through the roof, you have to stop and wonder, like, is any of this from undiagnosed Lyme right now in this country, you know, because it is real. I, I, you know, I have a daughter that had Lyme and she had a mental, like when she was like in sixth or seventh grade, the anxiety was through the roof, like crying and screaming at 10 o'clock at night. Like, I don't want to go. She was afraid to go to sleep for some reason. And I remember, you know, going to talk to a doctor about it, like a psychiatrist, and she didn't really understand. And that's when like, she happened to be, I happened to call her because she's like, call me next time it happens. And she ran over and experienced it. Mm. And I was like, see, this is, and she's just like, it was the Lyme. Because as soon as we got her antibiotics and got her like treated for Lyme, it went away in a second. But it really, I don't think is talked about enough about how the mental piece of it, forget being denied that you even have anything wrong or you have the financial stress of Lyme, but just what the actual virus and bacteria does to you. Right. So I suspect you're aware of the nomenclature PANS. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So let's just talk about that a little bit because I think it's a really, really big deal. So initially in 1994, Susan Sweeto and colleagues described PANDAS, which was pediatric autoimmune neuropsychiatric disease associated with streptococcal infections. And what they were describing was kids who had been normal and healthy, they get a strep throat, and suddenly they develop severe OCD and eating disorders and different anxiety, depression, behavioral, cognitive problems with decline in school performance, tick disorders, and abnormal involuntary movements and sleep problems and bedwetting. I mean, out of the blue, out of the blue, like they've fallen off a cliff. Since then, the nomenclature has changed from PANDAS to PANS. So PANS stands for Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. And the reason that nomenclature has been changed because it's not just strep. There are viruses like Epstein-Barr virus, the common cold, HIV, but also Bartonella, super common, as you know, uh, co-infection, mycoplasma, a common co-infection, and maybe Lyme disease, which I wrote an article, it's actually up for review right now, we can come back to that. But I'll describe a patient I had, this 16-year-old who came to me with a diagnosis of anorexia nervosa. She had been in an eating disorder clinic as an inpatient refusing to eat, body image issues, although she was not overweight whatsoever. And she was in and out of this eating disorder unit because she was refusing to eat. They had to put it in a nasogastric tube. She was suicidal, was really threatening with intent. And because they had lived in upstate New York and the mother was a nurse, the mother managed to get her tested for Lyme and it was positive and they brought her to see me and she was positive for Lyme. Babesia, mycoplasma, and she wasn't positive for Bartonella, but she had Bartonella, which is very interesting. She had the Bartonella stria, right? She had those lines that sometimes people think are stretch marks, even though they're in different planes than stretch marks and they're not associated with weight gain. And she thought that these stretch, these stria, Bartonella stria, were stretch marks because she was overweight. Isn't that interesting? Oh, wow. The great story is we put her on antibiotics, including a few months of intravenous antibiotics. She stayed on antibiotics for a year and she's been in remission. She's apparently cured anyway. She's, this has been years. 
it's about four years since we did that. And she has no eating disorder. And it turns out there's a huge amount of documentation about infections causing eating disorders. That patient made me wonder how many of kids who are adolescents who are suffering from mental health issues actually have a PANS-like syndrome, have tick-borne infections. And a colleague of mine, Nancy Brown, was medical director at a residential treatment center in actually right at the foot of the Rocky Mountains, Estes Park. And we did a study. We had 10 kids at random, all diagnosed with major depressive disorder, seven with generalized anxiety disorder, a lot of them with suicidal intent and cutting and things like that. None of them had a known medical disorder except for one had celiac disease. And we tested them. Turns out about six of them tested positive for tick-borne infections. So they had antibodies. Nine out of 10 had positive Cunningham panels. So for the sake of your audience, the Cunningham panel was designed to diagnose this PAN syndrome. What the PAN syndrome is, is it's an autoimmune reaction stimulated by the microbes that results in inflammation in the brain. And now you've got brain on fire. Okay. So again, just a, a little more explanation for the people who are watching this. If you get a strep throat and it's not treated, what can happen is antibodies to the strep attack the heart valves and that's rheumatic fever. The reason those antibodies attack the heart valves is because there's some sort of similar cellular structure between the strep bacteria and the heart valves. So uh, it's called molecular mimicry. It's an infection, the strep, and it's an autoimmune reaction. And what we're talking about with these microbes and mental illness is, that, is the same thing, but instead of attacking heart valves, it's attacking the brain. And you've got a brain on fire. And these poor kids, particularly OCD and eating disorders, but all sorts of mood and behavioral issues, and it can be really, really tough. I mean, they can also be psychotic. I have a patient right now who's on intravenous antibiotics and about to start intravenous gamma globulin for this condition. But nine out of 10 That's of crazy. these adolescents, nine out of 10 of these adolescents who couldn't hack it at home because they were too depressed and anxious, couldn't go to public school, tested positive. I mean, we were blown away. So by like the all these mental homes around the country should be testing for this. Well, the other fact too, is that a doctor I've worked with, cause I've gotten hyperthermia and he specializes in ALS patients. And he said, he's, he's been testing every single one of his ALS patients and every single one of them have undiagnosed Lyme. That's really, really interesting. So I did submit a, a paper recently. I'm waiting for it to go through peer review and it's an opinion article. And the title is does Lyme disease cause PANS? And right now, we cannot definitively say it does. We can say tick-borne infections do. And like I've already described, I don't see Lyme disease without the co-infection. So how can we mm -hmm. indict Borrelia burgdorferi, the Lyme pathogen? But I basically end up concluding that we should rename this syndrome because yeah. It's not just pediatric population, and it's not just acute onset. And I suggested we call it 
microbe-induced autoimmune neuropsychiatric syndrome, or MANS, and realize that the same thing is going on in adults. It's just that we're not running these Cunningham panels on adults much. We're, we're just looking at children and adolescents. But boy, wouldn't it be a, a good study to take a bunch of adults with significant neuropsychiatric mm -hmm. complaints associated with tick-borne infections and start running Cunningham panels? There was a study by Brian Fallon. You probably know he's at Columbia. And I'm pretty sure Madeline Cunningham was part of the study who helped develop the Cunningham panel. And they looked at people who had Lyme, who had had Lyme, and some of them continued to be symptomatic. And they found that a, a significant percentage of them actually had positive Cunningham panels compared to a control population of people who never had Lyme. None of them had I don't that's think any of those controls wow. had Cunningham panels, you know. So, you know, this whole autoimmune business is is really a big deal. It's really a big deal. Right. Okay. So if we, can we take it a step further? So if someone comes to your office, I know you refer them each very individually. You, you don't have a set plan for every, it's not like the same for everybody. You were one of the only doctors that I've talked to so far that have treated with Decilifrem. So I would love for you to speak about that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So this got a lot of attention. So a colleague of mine, Ken Liegner, a good doc that I've known for about 20 years probably or more. So the story is very interesting. There's a Stanford group that ran over, I'm trying to remember, over 4,000 agents against Lyme in the laboratory. And then they published their top 20 hits. And number one of that top 20 was disulfiram. It had the most killing power of over 4,000 agents that they tested. Wow. Then there's this doctor at Northeastern University, Kim Lewis, at the microbiology department, who they did their own studies. And he presented in October 1996 at a conference and described his results. And he had this bar graph. If patients want to go onto LymeDisease.org and see a, an article that I had posted there around July of 2000, to get my year straight, 2019, I think, that bar graph is in that article. And what he showed was how many bacteria are still present after treatment with different antibiotics. And with doxycycline, a lot. Mm -hmm. And then rocephin, better. Vancomycin, another intravenous drug, better. And then disulfiram, none. There were no bacteria left. They said they'd never seen anything like it. No persister cells. It was sterile. They'd never seen anything like it. Okay. So a patient of Dr. Liegner's who saw this lecture, and the lecture's online, you can find it, went to Dr. Liegner and said, I want to be treated with disulfiram. Now, mm -hmm. this patient was diagnosed with Lyme and Babesia, and he'd been on antibiotics for eight or nine years, and he was pretty good. He couldn't stop those antibiotics, or he would relapse, and he wanted to get off these antibiotics. And Ken Liger did his due diligence, researched the antibiotics, are there any contraindications, whatever. In short order, they stopped his triple antibiotic regimen. They put him on a full dose of disulfiram. And after four months, he said, I'm cured. He stopped it. And it is over three and a half years later. He's good. 
That's amazing. It is amazing. It was also a bit of beginner's luck. He subsequently saw two more patients with similar histories, and he published that. And then after he published that, I wrote this article on LymeDisease.org, and then it got a huge amount of attention. So we've learned a lot since then because, you know, I've treated over 100 patients. There really are quite a few doctors who are using this disulfiram. And I would say two things about it. One is it is a breakthrough drug, particularly for Lyme and Babesia, and it's a dangerous drug, both. People can really get into trouble. We got this false sense of security because this drug's been around since 1949 when it was approved for use for alcoholics because Mm -hmm. what it does by inhibiting the breakdown of acetaldehyde, which is a breakdown product of alcohol, it causes major hangover reactions. And so if an alcoholic is willing to take it, then it's a disincentive to have just one drink because it will really not feel good, right? Well, it's been around for what, 70 years? And there really haven't been a lot of toxicity associated with it. And yes, there have been reports here and there, but not big series compared to other drugs on the market. It it had a pretty low side effect profile. However, it turns out that people with Lyme disease do not tolerate this drug nearly as well as alcoholics. Go figure. But it turns out, think about it, alcoholics, at least until they develop end-stage cirrhosis, probably have better detox systems because how many people with chronic Lyme do you know who could drink, you know, a beer or two without feeling it? I mean, most of my patients can't, you know. I can't. Yeah. I mean, if I have a a sip of wine, which... I'm in bed for a couple of days. There you go. the, The detox systems of alcoholics allow them to overindulge. Okay, I was wondering why, because, you know, I, I I was attempting to start it, right? And so you're only allowed to take like a fraction of a pill, right? But when you get it from CVS, they're giving you instructions as if you're an alcoholic. So it says, take two tablets in a day, but your doctor tells you, no, 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 you can only take a quarter. And then the next day or three days later, you increase it. So I was wondering like, well, why can't I just take two pills like, like an alcoholic? Because why does it work? Is it okay? So that's why I didn't know. Interesting. Well... There's another reason, because you might have the mother of all Herxheimer reactions. This drug can cause really major Herxheimer reactions. I have patients who tolerate full doses of antibiotics without trouble, but disulfiram really kicks their butts. And that's the reason we start on low doses. So there's two main issues. One is the Herxheimer reactions, and the other is neurotoxicity. So there are a whole bunch of potential side effects, but the significant ones are neurotoxicity, both peripheral and central. So peripheral, it can cause nerve damage. And people will say, whoa, whoa, I'm starting to get pins and needles sensations or burning, stabbing pains. And that's nerve inflammation. And that can be a direct toxic effect of disulfiram, actually disulfiram metabolites. And it can also cause central that is encephalopathic brain toxicity, in which case you can get anything from cognitive complaints and severe headaches and fatigue to serious mood disorders, including depression, anxiety, and manic behavior. Mm -hmm. And I only took it for like two days and I was like crying and depressed and sad. So I just got off of it. I was like, this is not worth it. Not for you. And so that's what's really important. Dr. Liegner 
did a survey of 70 patients, and he described that, I think, first at a conference this past September at iLabs and at another conference, and now it's been published. And I talked with Ken about this because he had A, pretty high success rate with the drug, and B, very low toxicity and tolerance and good tolerance with the drug. And, you know, we went through his numbers and I said, you know, Ken, I have a different population of patients than you do. I have patients who on the smallest dose have major Herxheimer reactions. We just can't get anywhere. When I say smallest dose, I mean an eighth of a pill or less. Mm -hmm. The pills are 250 milligrams. An eighth of a pill would be 31.25 milligrams. And I have patients who develop neurotoxicity on those doses. I have a patient who on an eighth of a tablet every three days was feeling great, but within two months, she had developed neuropathy. And he, he wasn't seeing that. So it's true that different doctors See different attract things. different populations of patients. So what do you typically go for? Like, What's your typical go-to treatment for, for Lyme patients? Well, as you may recall, in the book, somewhere in the book, people invariably ask me, how do you treat Lyme disease? And my answer is, I don't. I treat people, and they're all different. Mm-hmm. I don't have a cookbook. I would say if we're talking about a general strategy, the first thing I do is look at infrastructure. You know, I want to know whether they have any significant hormonal disruption. Do they have food sensitivities or chemical sensitivities? Are living in a moldy environment? Do Mm -hmm. they have mold toxins? These are things that not only contributing to symptoms, but are actually going to get in the way of treatment. So we need to address these things. And It's just different with different people. Some people, I suggest we start on some antibiotics. I would say, in general, I'll start treating the Lyme first, not the co-infections, that we find that hitting the low-hanging fruit, Lyme generally easier to treat than the the BC of Bartonella mycoplasma, the more common co-infections. And when we treat the Lyme, then it's easier to treat the co-infections. I've had sometimes uh, a patient come to see me, a new patient, and we start off, I say, you know, it looks like you have Lyme and Babesia, but we're just going to start treating the Lyme and see how that goes. When they come back, not only is their Lyme much better, but their Babesia is much better too. And we think that's because their immune system has recovered somewhat from just knocking the Lyme down. So then now their immune system is doing a better job on the Babesia, okay? So we go with, so I usually start treating Lyme first. Very, very important is I just start treatment one thing at a time. I'm very, very careful. And I never start two things at once. We want to know, A, how are they responding? B, how are they tolerating? You know, are they herxing? If it's a bad herx, I'll cut back. I don't believe in herxing, which is not to say it doesn't happen, but rather... I don't believe it's good for you. It's really bad. It's it's creating a whole lot of inflammation in your body, which is the main problem to begin with. So I'll do everything I can to mitigate Herxheimer reactions, which means we'll slow down the regimen. So if I'm starting people on antibiotics, we'll usually start on a low dose of antibiotics and slowly increase that and then go to the next antibiotic and using combinations of an intracellular which should mainly be a macrolide like azithromycin, Zithromax, or 
biaxin, which is clarithromycin, often adding to that hydroxychloroquine, which can actually improve the efficacy of the intracellular antibiotics, and then adding an extracellular antibiotic like a cephalosporin or amoxicillin or augmentin. So basically we're hitting it from like a pincer move inside and outside the cells and making sure we're dealing with those infrastructure issues and making sure they're getting plenty of probiotics, they're getting anti-yeast agents to prevent the yeast overgrowth. But let's say a patient seems more fragile, and many of my patients really have been sick for years or decades even, and they are fragile. I might not go with antibiotics initially. I might start with some biologicals like, like uh, cemento. I really like the combination of cemento and banderol, which are as you know, are from Nutramedics. Again, starting one at a time and starting slowly. It sounds bizarre, I think, to mainstream docs, but Lyme docs have seen this over and over, which is some people, you give them one drop of these extracts and they have a major Herxheimer reaction. And if that happens, you know, usually I just give up on it right there. I, I used to try to have people take just such tiny amounts, but we never got very far. I have a lot of patients a significant subset of patients who just don't tolerate botanical antimicrobials. That is, you know, we try to give them super low doses and they hurt, but do tolerate pharmaceutical antibiotics. So it's always trying to figure out, you know, what works for this patient. Ideally, though, I get people on both the pharmaceutical and the, the botanical antibiotics, because they seem to hit the bugs from different directions. And then once we can get people into remission, then withdraw the pharmaceuticals and just keep them on the natural extracts mm -hmm. for, for a while. Mm -hmm. and, and typically Lyme and the cofactors have like a three-month, is it life cycle or is it longer? No. They, okay. You have to separate them out. Babesia, we mentioned before in relationship to my own history, is usually a one to two week cycle oh. flare that symptoms can suddenly flare and get better and suddenly get flare. And people might notice that with Babesia, particularly in the terms of night sweats and shortness of breath and waking up with anxiety and so on. Lyme more often has about a four-week cycle. In, in women, it usually coincides with their menstrual cycle. Oh, so that's kind of why it gets worse. So could we talk about your book? Um, you have it coming out. So when is that launching? March 16th. That's oh. what I'm told. That's my daughter's birthday. So um, also my, my ex-wife's birthday, which I thought was interesting. Oh, that's good. That's good. Can you tell us a little bit about it and why you decided to write a book? Yeah. So as you know, since, since you, you've seen a PDF of my book, I assume, I've had a lot of experience. You know, I was trained in internal medicine, you know, classic internal medicine. And, but then when I finished my training, I didn't want to be an internist because internists generally just treat end-stage disease and they don't cure anybody. And I grew up in a household. My mom was 
food editor of Prevention Magazine for 25 years. Now, back then, Prevention Magazine was not the slick rag that it is now. It was like the only place you could get information on nutrition mm-hmm. and how to order your vitamins through mail order and so on. So I grew up taking vitamin C and only having whole wheat bread, and we did not have soda pop in the house and so on. And I would go to my friend's house to get peanut butter and jelly on white bread. And <laughs> but my mom was always drilling home that, you know, nutrition is important. Not anything I learned in medical school and nothing I learned in internal medicine training. But it's a very weird paradoxical thing. I was just talking with a good friend of mine, a doctor about this. But So in addition to doing an internal medicine residency, I did a chief medical residency. And this was at a Columbia tertiary referral hospital and seeing very, very sick patients. As a chief resident, what was my job? It was actually consulting on the sickest people in the hospital. So here I am, I'm among the best and brightest in the hospital because I've gleaned the most out of the subspecialists. And I'm treating the sickest people, most of whom, hardly any, are gonna make it out of the hospital, let alone be alive the rest of the year. They have serious end stage illness, you know? And I'm so smart, I have so much information, and that's, that's the result. And I'm thinking, wow, if I could help 10 people stop smoking, you know, I'll have done more than I've done for all these ICU patients. And so when I finished my internal medicine residency, I opened a practice in that I called nutrition and preventive medicine based on what I learned from reading Prevention Magazine and the handful of other doctors. There were really only a handful of us practicing what was then called holistic medicine. Mm-hmm. And it has since morphed into what's now called integrative Fun- and functional, or functional medicine. medicine. Yeah. Cause I remember like 25 years ago, I was trying to find a function. I was following Mark, Dr. Mark Hyman and I tried to find functional medicine doctors and people were like, what are you talking about? Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. So at any rate, what happened was I started seeing people who had fallen through the cracks. I, you know, I thought I would just see people like, how do I stay healthy or what can I do to get off my blood pressure medication in terms of lifestyle? But I, what I was seeing was people falling through the cracks. And then I became, I developed expertise, not just in nutrition, but in environmental medicine. I took thousands of people through elimination challenge diets. And we dealt with all sorts of the functional complaints, like their pancreas not making enough enzymes, their stomach lining not making enough hydrochloric acid, and on and on and on. Okay, the point is, I have this very strong background in integrative medicine that I developed from the early days when there weren't that many of us. And my practice was doing medical detective work in people with chronic illness. Then Lyme comes around. beats the crap out of me. And when I finish, when I finish, I don't know that I'm ever finished. When I recover to the point where what I want to do is I want to help as many people not go through what I've gone through Mm -hmm. because it's terrible. It's awful. And so that's when 20 odd years ago, I practice became limited to seeing people with tick-borne infections. But I'm bringing with it just a whole lot of experience in nutrition and environmental medicine. Which goes hand in hand with Lyme, right? I mean, you're not going to get better unless you deal with that. And that's what I tell people now. Like if they call me and I'm like, you have no money to go see a doctor. 
you can do a lot of it at home, like change your diet, like stat. Like I wish I had done that six years ago because you're right. You're absolutely right. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. So bottom line, what I'm getting to, and I realize is a very long story is that I've basically accumulated a whole lot of experience in my 40 years of practicing medicine. And I have up until COVID, I always had people training with me. I had doctors and nurse practitioners from all over the country coming and sitting in with me as I evaluated patients. And I love it. I love teaching. But I also realized from their feedback that I had a whole lot of information to pass on because of the, my years and years of experience in these different fields. And I realized, well, now I'm 71 years old. I think I ought to write this down. And the good news is I really enjoy writing. I think I inherited that gene from my mom who wrote about a dozen books. The last one I co-authored with her. And it sounds like, wow, this book must have been a lot of work, but because it, it did take years and it, you've seen it. I mean, it, it goes into huge amounts. It's a of lot detail, of technical, like yeah. 400 pages, but in a way, I feel like it wrote itself. It just mm -hmm. really flowed. The process really flowed. I really enjoyed writing it, and I have continued to be writing articles and stuff like that. So the point of this book was, first of all, passing on this information to physicians. It's really written, as you've seen, with enough detail to say, here's when you should be considering these problems, here's how you can work it up, and here's how you can treat it. But it's in language that's available to lay people who, as you suggested, can do a lot of this stuff themselves. Mm -hmm. And or they can also take this chapter of the book to their physician and say, you know, I think I have this problem here, you know, can you order these tests? So I've received wonderful feedback from the multiple people who, who have seen it, who've commented on it, some whom have helped me edit it. And I think this, this book is going to go a long way to helping the Lyme population, as well as just substantiating the reality of Lyme disease complex. And right. you know, going back to what we were talking about before, that chapter on anatomy of the Lyme wars, you know, I think it, it just really knocks it out of the park in terms of... Well, you covered so much, too. I mean, I just know from reading... Like you just went down, I'm like going through the list. I'm like, okay, I have that, I have that, I have that. Like, you know, because of the mold, I have very high sensitivity mold. I have high sensitivity to gluten now and I never used to. Like it just went down the list of like the smells. I can walk into a room and like my daughter lit a candle the other day and I walked in, I'm like, <gasps> like I started breaking out in hives immediately. Mm -hmm. So it was just exactly what you're talking about. And I was like, okay, I'm not going crazy. And so now when a doctor asked me, what, what's that feeling that you call? Like, what, like when he's like, tell me what's going on in your body. And I'm like, I don't know. It's like this tingling feeling throughout my body. I could say, look, it's right here. He called it myos, you know, skeletal, skeletal, something that you called it. I'm like, that's exactly what I'm feeling. You know, so it's just, it was, a, it was nice to validate and put mm -hmm. into words what I've been going through. And I was aware of that I was, as I was writing up case histories you know, with thinking about how many people are going to be able to identify with this 23-point symptoms that the, the people are presenting with and not, not A, think they're crazy, or B, think the doctors think they're crazy. But no, this is real. There's lots of other people that really have the, the same multitude of symptoms, and, and you're not crazy. Mm -hmm. So what's, just to end it, what 
piece of advice, if you were to give anybody who is going through Lyme right now, like if they could do something at home right now while they're waiting to either get into a doctor, you know, because the line, the wait list is usually long or they don't have the money to get there. What would you say that they can do from home? That's the most mm. beneficial. You know, it's, it's a good question. As, as we mentioned in the beginning, every patient's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, even if we have the same labels, like you have Lyme, Babesia, and Bartonella, and say adrenal insufficiency, it doesn't mean you're going to respond to the same things as the next person who has those same labels. I do recommend getting the book and being able to pinpoint like, oh, here's where I think I have some imbalances. I can really connect with this Mm -hmm. description and start to address them. You know, I think certain things like that people can do at home, first of all, as you mentioned, is diet. Everybody has to get off sugar and alcohol. I just had a patient I talked with yesterday. He developed bipolar disorder from falling over off her diet. I mean, she was she was manic and depressed, both. It happened when she, Thanksgiving, when she went off her diet and then couldn't stop. So she was lots of sugar, lots of alcohol. Okay. So the most common food sensitivities I see are dairy, eggs, yeast, and gluten. Those are the most common ones. And like you, most of these people did not have food sensitivities before they got Lyme. Lyme mm-hmm. results in issues like multiple sensitivity disorders and mast cell activation. So these are things you know you can read about and say, oh wow, I can take this stuff and it's going to help. So people can read about diet and make appropriate changes. They can read about different issues with the gut and find, oh, you know, maybe I need to add some enzymes or some betaine hydrochloride based on my symptoms and they it'll be a trial and error basis. Maybe I, this looks like I need some adrenal support. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there are herbs that people can buy them on the internet where I say, well, here's how you can take them. And to start to go after the Lyme and then the Babesia and then the Bartonella, there's an awful lot of things patients can do on their own if they're properly educated. And that's what I've tried to do in the book. Yeah, it's great. You did a great job. Thank you so much for your time. This has been amazing and very informative and I could talk hours. I feel like I still have so many questions, but you know, there's only so much time, but thank you. This has been great. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for this opportunity. Each week, I will bring you different voices from the wellness community so that they can share how they help their clients heal. You will come away with tips and strategies to help you get your life back. Thank you so much for coming on and I'm so happy you are here. Subscribe now and tune in next week. If you want to learn how I detox and you want to check out my detox for Lyme checklist, go to Lyme360.com forward slash detox checklist. You can also join our community at Lyme360 Warriors on Facebook and let's heal together. Thank you.